Welcome to the virtual Ward 10 Spadina Fort York virtual debate. I think I said that already. I am Matthew, your host of uh, This Time in History, the podcast. I am pleased to be joined by these fine people tonight. Uh, so you guys know how my debates work for my audience. It's going to be a two minute or so introduction for each candidate, followed by three sets of questions, a debate period for each set, and then the closing. Um, so in order of appearance, we're going to start with Kyle. Go ahead. Hello, my name is Kyle Enslin. I'm running for Ward 10, Spadina, Fort York, and I'm running on the basis of affordable, accessible, enjoyable Toronto. I've been living in this ward for six years, not as long as everyone has been, but I am one of those people who grew up outside of the city and look forward to moving city to find new life, uh, find a house, grow up, uh, start a family here, and enjoy the rest of my life here. In the coming recent years of living here, life's been getting more and more expensive, and it seems like council has been representing I would say the uh, younger generation, the middle generation or middle class generation, as well as they could. So my platform is uh, on the basis of making life more affordable for the middle class. And I have a plan on that and it focuses on housing. So right now we have what we call a housing crisis. Uh, the market is an absolute mess. There's no transparency in the market. So I wanna introduce bylaws new regulations, rental registry to increase transparency into the housing market. Along with this, I also want to introduce other bylaws, which make it harder for people to profit off of what is housing and residency, which includes the banning of Airbnbs, uh, higher vacancy tax, uh, uh, more foreign ownership tax, but I can go onto those points later likely. I also want to modernize the rules and regulations within this board and within Toronto at whole. I want to modernize drinking regulations, make it more um, young people friendly. Our ward especially, we are 80% or 50%-ish, 25 to 35 year olds. We are 80% people who live in high-rise condos. We are 60% renters. So we need this uh, representation in our city council to look out for those people that are living in this way. Thank you. Uh, April, go ahead. Hi, everyone. My name is April. For those of you who missed my previous appearance on This Time in History, um, I'm a candidate in Toronto City Council for Toronto City Council in Spadina, Fort York. I'm not affiliated with any political party. I came in second place last time to Councillor Joe Cressy, who, as we know, is not running again. Some things about me, I'm extremely passionate about Toronto City Council. I live right in the middle of the ward, and I'm running because these are the things that I really care about, and, and I think you do too. So I hope we get a higher voter turnout this time. Some points of differentiation. I want to emphasize, yes, I'm advocating for more affordable housing by making sure that new developments include rent geared to income. For example, I think a lot of us are going to be on the same page for many issues. I'm also advocating for safer bike lanes with real concrete barriers so we feel safe. I'm advocating for new and improved parks. I'm going to go over some points of differentiation. One, I'm the only candidate really pointing out here What's happening in our ward is we're getting three new subway stations, which is great. And I advocated last election for us to get subway stations in this ward. 
The thing is now going forward, we need a city councilor who will stand up for us and make sure that our streetcars are still running, our sidewalks are still accessible, and we don't end up in a disastrous Eglinton situation for the next 15 years. Also, point of differentiation, I'm the only candidate advocating to build a pedestrian cycling lift bridge to the islands so that we can all access our ward's largest public park for free. And as far as I know, I'm also the only candidate advocating to legalize public drinking in parks in this ward. I have a vision for our city, and it's about enjoying your everyday life in Spadina, Fort York, designing our city for our residents. Thanks. Thank you so much. Arbor, go ahead. Hi, everyone. Arbor Pucci. Uh, I've, been, I've been living in Toronto all my life since I, since I moved to Canada. I've been living in, uh, in the Spadina, Fort York area for about seven years now. Uh, I'm, I'm a professional engineer by trade, so I've been, I've been working in major infrastructure projects for over 15 years, multi, multi-million dollar projects for over 15 years of running those projects. And that was one of the things that why I decided to run for council. Uh, I've, I've done major projects. I know how to, how, to get, how to get things done, build things. So whenever I go around and see the, how our infrastructure is not properly maintained or properly on par where it should be, that, that was the frustration that, that made me wanted to become a counselor, right? And to April points, there is three, three, major, uh, three major stations that are going to come in. We're the one on, on Queen Espadina, the one on King of Baptist, uh, and the, the one for, on, uh, on Liberty Village. And I had the experience, to, the infrastructure built experience, to look at and oversee this kind of project, to make sure to get done. They, they get properly done and probably and have proper oversight on, on top of them. So uh, another point as part of my agenda uh, is increasing park space and maintaining, and maintaining parks as well. As we know, everybody, most probably 90% of the people living in, in our world that live in condos, right? And the park and the community spaces, they, they become our backyard. So we need to, okay, we need to ensure that green space is being built and uh, developers are, are not taking advantage of the space. Uh, also, as an engineer, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty big in transforming Toronto in carbon neutral city. I know the mandate is to, to transform by 2000, 2040, and then the, this transformation, it includes improvement of public transportation, ensure it's fast and efficient, improvement infrastructure and safety for pedestrians, cyclists, and all new forms of carbon-free carbon -free travel boosting our EV infrastructure throughout the city. And, and of course, housing affordability, which is key to, to many residents, as we know it, especially with inflation going up so high. It, it's, if we don't do anything at this point, we're going to have a crisis in our hands and we're going to have, we're going to push more people out of their house and into the streets. And also, uh, I'm, as far as I know, I'm the, the only residence that is, is pushing to reduce noise, noise levels throughout the, in the city and, and, uh, and support our residents. Thank you so much. Stephanie, go ahead. Hello, I'm Steph Salterman. I'm obviously also running in Ward 10, Spadina, Fort York. It's my first time running in an election. Uh, prior to this, I have almost 18 years experience in progressively senior roles in the banking industry, um, more recently in supplier risk and compliance. Uh, so definitely very familiar with uh, the fine details of things and the importance of, of those as well. Overall, I'm trying to filter everything that uh, if elected, 
every decision would be going through the, the, the filter of affordability, accessibility, and recovery. So if it did not serve one of those three purposes, it would be very likely that I would not support it or be less supportive of it um, because those are the three key priorities that I think will have the most impact on the residents at this point. So affordability covers anything from the food insecurity, which um, my understanding is it's on the rise with the inflation and cost of living, as well as housing, uh, not just for one particular income group, but actually for all levels of income in Spadina, Fort York, as a large percentage don't currently make enough to cover the average rent from an affordability perspective. I, for our accessibility can be anything from year-round public access to public washrooms or advocating for ODFP recipients to receive a more livable wage and have more options uh, as well while being in that program. Uh, access, sorry, and recovery is anything from, um, and, and many other things of course, but uh, includes, um, financial need-based initiative for small businesses to apply for uh, some kind of relief for their property taxes, given the effects of the last couple of years on small business, as well as um, bolstering and advocating, advocating for bolstering of mental and physical health. Thank you so much. I forgot to announce at the top of the hour, you know, with me as always was my uh, co-host, but she's not feeling well tonight, so I'll be going solo, and I'll do my best to remember her questions. Uh, so we're going to start with the housing crisis, because that is the, I guess, the, the hot topic, as it would be. Um, her question would be, um, what do we, what do we do about the the abandoned slash vacant uh, properties uh, in this city? Uh, do we tax them to death or do we uh, try to acquire them? And then my question would be, um, would you be, would you support a rent freeze and or uh, legalization of rooming houses? Now we're going to we're going to flip. So I'll start with April and then Arbor and then Stephanie and then Kyle, you'll finish it off. Go ahead, April. Thanks. Thanks for the question. So yes, I am supportive of rooming houses. So for those who don't know, rooming houses are, it might be, for example, a house where each room has a different lease, for example. And I've, I've known people who've lived in these places as a student and it's significantly more affordable. So the idea is to get people to have homes rather than become homeless, right? It's, it's a great solution. I'm supportive of rooming houses. Um, yes, I'm also supportive of the a vacancy tax. So what that means is if you buy a property on spec basically and you're just kind of holding on to it wait, waiting to make money and therefore for whatever reason you decide to not have a tenant, you will pay extra tax on that and you will most likely decide to have a tenant. Again, this creates more housing. I'm supportive of that. Um, other solutions I'm I'm advocating for, I think I mentioned making sure that all new developments inc include some units that are with rent geared to income. Because we keep on saying affordable housing, affordable housing, but what's affordable to one person might be affordable, might be not affordable to another. That's why it's about rent geared to income. Also about helping people transition out of homelessness by building supportive housing around this ward. So supportive housing is a place for people to transition out of homelessness where there's wraparound supports available for them 24 seven and they yet they have their own unit. So they don't actually feel like they're living in a homeless shelter. Thank you so much. Arbor, go ahead. 
Hi, so I think looking at the statistics, there isn't that many houses that are that are empty in our city. It's a very, very small percentage. Uh, either way, we we should not allow that. And it, it doesn't make it doesn't make business sense for anybody to have a house that nobody leaves in there when they can rent it free. So as a government, we we have to push that. I mean, even if it can be taxes, as I said, taxes people or uh, to in order for them. To, to, to rent it out, right? Uh, when it comes to, to shared housing, there, there is a bigger issue over there, right? Because most of the, 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 the way it works, it's usually with zoning. So what happens is that certain zoning gets the shared houses, which are like student houses, a house with, with a house with four, four different apartments that live there. And then you create this low income area in a way in, in certain areas, which doesn't really help the community. As we have seen the past, the past decades, we have tried to be pushing away from this low community housing and integrate everybody into the society, right? So, uh, building building buildings and having a certain part of the building creating an affordable house in it, right? So this way we can and we can integrate even the low low income families into into the uh, into the community and make sure that they have a good future and everyone to a good school and they have good social services like the rest of us, right? And we don't want to isolate them in one area because that does not help. Uh, it does not help them. It, it, it becomes a, 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 a society with, uh, I guess, with not enough social services and with drug-related issues and abuse issues that we, as we have seen before in certain areas in Toronto. So the, in a way, the, in my opinion, the best solution is the house affordability. So with all this development that it's, that's it's occurring, we, we, need to, we need to ensure there is, there is a certain number of, of units that they can be given to low-income people and there's government incentive that can support it. As, and as we know, it's $2 billion coming from federal government. Uh, there's a poverty plan based on the province. We need to ensure as a council, as city of Toronto, we need to ensure to get as much money as possible from the provincial level and the federal level in order to support this program. Because in a way, Toronto is the one that has the most issues when it comes to house affordability. So we need to work with the federal and provincial government in order to get as much money as, as possible to support this low income families with house affordability. Thank you. Thank you. Stephanie, go ahead. So on my platform, I mentioned that I actually want to advocate for a rent freeze uh, with offsetting potential financial need applications for homeowners that are affected by the ability to not increase their rent. That is, of course, a provincial uh, jurisdiction matter, but doesn't mean that we can't raise our voices and try to ask for it, uh, because I do think that it would be a big help at this time. The other thing is there's currently something like a 10-year backlog in the rent geared to income program, depending on a number of factors, and that was pre-pandemic. It was 10 years of a wait list, so uh, I definitely think that we need more support obviously more supply, so integrating it into new buildings, um, yes, but also expanding the income ranges that can be included in it. Um, right now, it's it's mostly geared to the, the really low income, but uh, Spadina, Fort York, and much of Toronto is unaffordable for people even with decent jobs. So I think that that needs to be reconsidered, uh, the parameters for that. Um, do you mind repeating the question? Because I think I'm forgetting pieces of it. 
Yeah, so uh, Ebony's question would have been, um, what do we do with the abandoned slash vacant uh, properties, uh, residential properties in the city? And uh, you you answered mine about the rent freeze and the, um, or it was, it was actually and or legalization of rooming houses. Yeah, so I do support the legalization of rooming houses. Um, I also have on my platform advocating for more resources for the, the existing landlord and tenant board. There's currently significant backlog there for the existing uh, legal rental residences. So there's no real point in having great laws that are supposed to protect tenants if and or landlords if they actually have to wait two and a half, you know, sometimes more, sometimes less years to be heard and have their issue addressed. Um, so especially if we then added uh, rooming houses to something like that, it would definitely need more resources, but it already needs more resources as it is. As for the vacancy tax, I'm very much in favor of that. I don't see why when there is such a shortage somebody would even do that. I mean, I understand why they don't want to pay for repairs and they don't want to pay for the hassles of renting it out, I guess. They're just rich enough to be able to have it and hold it. But uh, I'm fully supportive of taxing those. Thank you so much. Kyle, go ahead. Any abandoned building within the water within Toronto should have a development development plan attached to it. If somebody's owning a building and it's been uninhabited or unused for five years or over, or even two years, say, and they don't have a plan attached to it, it should be within the city's power to repossess that building and put it towards affordable housing or any housing for that matter. The fact that we can have land ready to use, ready to develop on, and that it's just being sit on by the people who own it is an atrocity. And the land belongs to the people, belongs to the community. So it needs to get back in the hands of the community. For rooming houses, very much in favor, like everyone else here. Rooming houses are a transition for people that are experiencing homelessness to get out of homelessness. Rooming houses offer much cheaper rents than what a normal rent would be. Uh, you can sometimes get rent within like the $500 to $1,000 range compared to, let's say, a single bedroom studio that goes from anywhere between $15 to $2,500 now in today's climate. Uh, further that, for student housing, uh, it's a no-brainer for rooming houses for student housing. Like Students have operated in this way in many different counties, many different areas, and they've been operating very well with that regard. And I also want to speak on the housing issue for myself, is that one of my key things to helping solve the solving issue, housing issue, is to reduce competition within the ward. It's currently right now, rents are so high, and uh, because that they're in competition with people who are trying to buy property for profit, whether that be an Airbnb or a landlord. And rents are even so high still because landlords are competing with each other to buy properties. Since 2013, an article came out, I think, uh, this the other weekend, that 80% of all new homes have gone to people who have not bought their first home yet, so multiple property owners. We need to make sure that community housing or housing belongs to the community and goes to first time uh, property owners and not to people that are competing with each other. So that's why I'm trying to enact regulations of removing Airbnbs because they're short term rentals. They make $150 on a house a day, competes with housing. There are 8,000 registered Airbnbs legally operating in Toronto. And according to the scrape, wood scraping data, there are about 10,000 illegal operating in Toronto. So if we were to free up that population to add to renters, 
that would add 10,000 more homes for people to live in. Thank you so much. And now this is your opportunity to have an open floor debate or in the case that you all agree, if there's anything else that you, any of you want to add on the housing crisis, go ahead. Carl, if I want to, I just want to ask you a question because I know you're against Airbnb, but there's a lot of people in the city, they use Air, Airbnb to subsidize their housing costs, right? And they can only afford their house because their Airbnb portion of it. So this people really their livelihood of the house dependent from this uh, facilitation that Airbnb provides. So if you take that away from them, what are these people going to do? I will say that when I say this, I mean, it's for single family dwelling areas where people are living in a current unit and they can subsidize a part of that unit for short term rentals, such as what a bed and breakfast would be. I fully support that as a business decision. Well, what about so, a condo with two units with two bedroom, right? That somebody has it or even one bedroom plus den and the Airbnb, the den, right? And I'll get a couple like a thousand dollars extra a month to, to afford their their uh, their mortgage. Yeah, I would say those should be still able to operate as long as somebody is firmly living within the vacancy of the condo or building that they're residing. But how are you going to enforce that? Because it's very hard to go to somebody else's house to see what they actually have in there, right? Part of my platform is something called a rental registry where yeah. a single landlord who has a property to rent must put that property on the rent registry. It's, uh, so basically what it is, is it's a database that will contain all contact information for a landlord. And then it will be an area for tenants to be able to look for housing and an area for tenants to be able to find housing. Right now, housing is split up between, if you try to find a house right now, you gotta, you're split between condos.ca, getting a realtor or going on Zillow. A rental registry will be, uh, so I wanna mandate this, so that it has to be done, but- and the, and the city will maintain this registry? The city will maintain the registry, yes. There's many other cities that have already done this, Seattle, uh, Syracuse, almost all of California has a rental registry. It's not too expensive. It is about a budget cost of like $3.6 million a year, but this would just provide more transparency to the market. So as I was saying that though, if you are, in a house that is not a rental and it is on the rental registry, it will either undergo the vacancy tax or people have to claim it as a rental property. Otherwise it is not uh, on the regulation. So if somebody is living in a condo and they are submitted themselves living as a condo, there'd be no issues with them airbnb and being it out of their condo because they would be listed as an occupant of that unit. Like the, the only thing for something, $4 million, you can use that towards your house affordability, right? That's, well, that's probably 10,000, 10,000 families that you can support with that money, right? So you know, to buy four houses. It, it's give and take, right? What, what the volume? Sorry? This also the price about four modern houses. This also so, is- you, you're, you're, you're subsidizing people's rent, right? That's how you make them affordable. That, that's what city does. They will subsidize 30% of your rent or 40% of your rent in order to, to help you your housing affordability for, for low income. So like nobody's going to buy you the house, right? It just, all they do is like that bunch of money housing affordability, they pay low income people that percentage of their, of their rent, you know, to support them being affordable, right? 
this isn't about subsidizing rent. This is about reducing speculation in markets and making sure that people can see all buildings that are available to rent. And then also the city will be able to see what buildings are being sold, what buildings are actually being sold. Well, but, but that's what that's what I disagree on because that's speculation. The federal level, we've been trying to fight this speculation on the market for for years, and now it's kind of with with us increasing the interest rate, it's it's helping a little bit, right? But as a city, do we really have power to fight this speculation? Well, what do you think? Uh, other cities have done it. Montreal just started. Vancouver's doing it. PEI even had their own uh, Charlotte tap. They created their own within the residents in the city, and also this gives more powers to tenants. Tenants will be able to uh, more easily access uh, ways to contact a building code about violations of their building code. There's a straightforward way to contact landlords because they have to be registered within the city. Being a landlord is too easy. Anybody with money can buy a property and become a landlord. There needs to be some sort of barrier between that so that people that are actually qualified to be a landlord are allowed to be a landlord. The city deserves better. Yeah, but in a way, we shouldn't even... We, you know, we're, we're always trying to challenge the landlords, the landlords, right? And these are people like normal, like us, some people that have some money invested in a house and stuff like that, and they're trying to, trying to make a living. And they're, they're renting it out, which is what we want people to do, right? We want people to rent it so they can create more housing and people can go in. So uh, we should look a little bit more on both sides, on the renter side and the landlord side, because I've talking to a lot of people and there's a lot of landlords that are actually uh, complaining based on, uh, I guess, the laws that are against them. Because right now, if somebody doesn't pay, it takes six months to a year to evict somebody. And these people that invested their life saving over there, now they can't do much because they got to pay another rent for six months or a year and they're going to go bankrupt because in a way they, 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 the, the laws are against them. So uh, I think we, we have to look at both sides when we look at both on the landlord side to help the landlord in order to, to make things more accessible. And that's why you see a lot of people don't even bother putting the market because they're like, I'm not, I don't want to deal with somebody that's not going to pay me for six months. I'd rather leave it empty, right? So that, that is one of the issues. So in a way, I feel like we have to look at both sides. We have to look at the landlord sides and the people that actually need house, affordable, affordable housing and how it can help it. That, I mean, that's yeah. my thought. It's people protecting investment against people that are trying to start a life. There, you have no way to enter this market or build equity without uh, a massive price adjustment because we have all these landlords fighting with each other. They're in constant competition when buying a unit to rent in. That competition is not unhealthy or sustainable for people trying to grow in an emerging market. Uh, any else, anyone else have something to add before we, uh, we move on to the next set? I also want to advocate um, for some changes to some mortgage regulations. So before the 2008 housing uh, crisis, you could get a mortgage amortization of, I think it's like 40 years. And then with everything that happened, they gradually over the years reduced it to, last I checked, I think it's 25 years. Uh, and that can make sense for you know uh, people in certain age demographics, but for people trying to enter the market, for example, there was a time where a 20 year old could buy a condo or could buy an initial starter home, depending on their job, um, expecting them to have a house paid off in, in 20 years, although better for them from an interest rate perspective, 
it really just boxes them out as well. So I think that there's levers that we can uh, advocate around that don't cost the city money, but that make things a bit more affordable for people. And those are the types of things that I would want to be adding to the agenda. So, so Stephanie, what can the city do regarding the amortization risk? I don't think that they can. What I'm saying is they can advocate, bring the topic up, try to go to their provincial and federal level people. It, I, I think that there's opportunities to at least have the conversation if it was 40 years before. So one of the ones that I wanted to consider was something where it's, let's say right now that the minimum or the maximum is 25 years. So I believe that's the last I checked it was what it was. Um, there could also be an adjustment where it's whichever of the two is greater. So if you're, for example, 20, you could get a 45 year amortization because you still in theory have it paid off by 65, um, but it doesn't disadvantage further disadvantage somebody who's in their later years because they'd still have access to the 25 year amortization that they already have. But Stephanie, let me get, let me ask you, do you think that helps the low income people or people that actually have, have more money? For example, let me give you. Oh yeah, I think it's, I, I think it's more of the middle. I don't think it's going to solve the problem for the lower income households. That's, that's a whole other matter of, of making rental options more affordable. Um, but I do think it would, make room back in the, the entrance of the market for um, middle middle income. Yeah, I, I feel that that will push even more, even more businesses or landlords on, on the market, right? For example, let's say a, a rich, just an example, a rich lawyer like April. Now, instead of buying one house, can buy two houses, right? Because her mortgage rates, her mortgage payments are, are cutting are half of their use is to be so with that rental question, they can subsidize two it, two places instead of one yeah i see that but but she'd also be paying more interest if we're using april as the example right and uh so it, it's it's really not necessarily uh it's not cheaper for the person to have a longer amortization but it gets them in instead of wasting money on rent so so i don't necessarily i see the benefits outweighing that scenario and i i i mean again i could be lacking an example that matches this but i i don't know many young people that could afford multiple properties i could see people using it to be taken advantage of right you know yeah. but so that, yeah that. that's where i was going and, and, I, and I get where you're going with that yeah. but i think that if we make policies uh if we if we omit making a policy because of the few that are going to take advantage uh, potentially take advantage it just it just hurts the people we're trying to help even worse so i think it's at least worth a conversation and and some effort okay we're I'll gonna say I, oh yeah, sorry I, yeah no no you go from, ahead april yeah yeah okay um aside from you know just being called rich when i'm a lawyer and also no, I'm just, I'm yeah okay so anyway aside from that i just think we should focus on things that are actually city policy like we've just been talking for a while now about things that the city does not actually control so if i could just say going forward we should try to focus on that okay so we're going to move ahead now to our second set of questions and this focuses on crime so Ebony's question would be uh, what kinds of uh, ideas for urban design um, it, it, I guess in an effort to uh, curb crime um, would uh, I guess you would think of and then my question is is a little bit more direct um, if you've seen my other debates you know the question we do have a mayoral candidate 
who's running and if he wins he wants to reinstall carding as a tool for the Toronto police to use and my question would be how do you respond to this and why uh, Arbor we're going to start with you and then Stephanie and then Kyle and then April will end with you go ahead Arbor so yeah, so this ward has seen a large increase in crime and violence year after year, right? I feel like more focus and emphasis is required from the city to curb the crime. I, I really believe that each neighbor in the ward needs a community safety program because each neighbor has, has different needs and, and different crime that, that is occurring. Uh, on the carding side, the city has acknowledged systematic discrimination with this police, right? Uh, and they have taken steps to do reform to ensure public safety is equal for all Torontonians. And in a way, this is not a one-stop shop that you, you update some processes this and, uh, and everything's fine. This requires a systematic review and continuous improvement. If we're going back to the carding, we are, we're taking a step back. Right, because we have improved and we, we are willing to improve. So somebody comes in and tries to put us five years back, uh, I think that, that is ridiculous. But overall, I, I think policing in general, it has to be a little bit more strategic because it's not only about, I guess, looking over people, shouting what they're doing. It's, it's community programs that we need to put in place, right? We, we, we need to re reduce vulnerability, for example, because the city has a large number of people with substance addiction problems, which leads to mental health issues that can leave this individual vulnerable to self-harm and crime. We, we need to ensure we can reduce violence. We need to prevent and reduce gun violence, interpersonal violence, gender-based violence, and domestic violence through strategic and coordinated efforts across the communities. And we also need to promote a healing and justice because throughout our history there's been dark patches where society, including our police forces, has discriminated people based on their color, gender, and sexual preferences. Even though it might be hard as a society, we need to promote healing within the police force and these community, community groups because I believe the division of society does not help the community. There are always going to be issues and challenges, but overall we need to get to work together to fix that. Thank you so much. Yeah. Steph Stephanie, go ahead. Yeah, I would not support uh, carding unless there was some sort of miraculous amount of data that I'm not aware of that gives merit to it. My understanding is it's not effective and just harmful to the general relationship between citizens and the police. I'd rather put tax dollars towards something else, um, like uh, like the programs for at-risk youth, for example. Um, but honestly, the one that still comes to mind for me, and we already did talk about it, is housing, because I think that that has the trickle effect down to everything else. So, um, you know, it makes people less desperate, less vulnerable, less everything. Um, so, yeah, I definitely wouldn't wouldn't be wasting money on that. Uh, the second part of the question. Uh, what types of uh, urban design ideas in, in, in order to curb crime? Um... Yeah, so I, I guess it'd be less about the urban design, more about just social programs. So uh, like I said, after school programs uh, that we and uh, and the housing and the food insecurity and all of that, all of that. Thank you. Uh, Kyle, go ahead. Yeah, so carding is a barbaric way to gather information on an individual. There's no reason why carding should come back. We live in an age of data. 
We live in an age where information is readily available to just about anyone. We have a, I think, what's the police budget? $1.3 billion. With that, they don't have an analysis team that can't get information on people without having to stop them and ask them. It's out of mind. They'd have to significantly talk about benefits that I don't think would outweigh any way of bringing back carding. It's a, it's a bad idea. And then, so for urban ideas to reduce crime. So one thing that I would like to see that I haven't seen in our ward or anywhere in Toronto in a while is I'd like to see more pedestrian patrols for police. Every time you look at a police officer, wherever you go, they're either driving by in a police car, sitting at a construction site or walking by in a horse. There's no community involvement with them. They don't seem to be a member of the community so much as they are an authority figure. I'd love to be able to see police taking our public transit, walking through parks, not biking by in squads of four, but walking in a pair of two that are approachable so that if a community has a question for a police officer, they can go up and ask them. There's a massive divide between our people and our uh, Toronto police force. I think that needs to be remedied. Along this as well, I would uh, support items such as things known as like the cure violence model where we uh, nonprofit groups go and they reach out to victims of violence through crime and they try to uh, mediate as opposed to a police officer. Because police pretty much stop when the violence stops. But if we had another team that would go after the violence has stopped to make sure that the situation is okay, a form of public social support, I'd very much uh, advocate for that as well. A sort of a crisis team or occupational therapists instead of relying all on our police force for this. Thank you. April, go ahead. Great, so just straight up, I'm not for, for carding. I'm definitely against any way of bringing back carding. We know that it's a racist practice. So that's out of the question for me. In terms of improving our public space, I think it's, it's about revitalizing what we have. So for example, today I made an announcement advocating to revitalize David Pico Square. This is a perfect example where our ward has changed drastically. We're the fastest growing ward in Toronto. We're the youngest ward in Toronto and city infrastructure needs to keep up. So for example, David Pico Square was designed in 1992. For those who don't know, it's you probably didn't notice it because it's very underwhelming. It's between uh, John and Simcoe, between King and Wellington. And it's mostly concrete, whereas now there's tens of thousands of people that live within a 10 minute walk of this square. So we, if we were to revitalize it and make it an actual park that has, you know, a dog park, water fountains, instead of literal payphones that are currently there, um, public washrooms, et cetera, these should be areas, downtown should be areas that people actually want to go. All of our public spaces should be a place that you want to go and enjoy yourself. So that's my answer on improving our public space. Thank you so much. And now uh, floor is open for a debate or if any of you have anything you want to add in terms of crime, go ahead. So if I, if, if I may start, I guess going back to pol policing, uh, I'll ask the question too, but for, for uh, all of us that are here right now, I think about 10% of the city's budget goes into policing right in our police force because the Toronto police force is the largest municipal police force in the country would you guys uh, are, are pro increasing that budget for the police or reducing it I don't 
Oh. I would be in favor of reallocating. Sorry, Kyle. I would be in favor of reallocating. So for example, changing what we actually have the police do. So the pilot project, for example, for mental health crisis support, um, that budget could go instead of a police officer coming to your door, if there's somebody in mental health crisis, it could be somebody properly trained in mental health crises. crises. Um, for example, reallocating that towards traffic services. We've all seen how ridiculously congested our ward is, especially around large sporting events. So these people could be traffic wardens. For me, it's, it's less about necessarily, you know, cutting what we're currently spending it's reallocating what we're currently spending and making it suit our needs better if i'm at april based on our experience when there is a police on a on a cross on a traffic light it just it's more of a mess than when you when the lights are actually working agree to disagree i find <laughs> yeah. that they they help the flow during very busy times imagine if they were a professionally trained traffic warden and that was their entire job that much faster they'd get traffic through Exactly. Real allocation of the police budget. We can make better use of it for the money that we have in there. Yeah, I, I would keep the funding as it is, but I would want to have a good look at where the money is going to see if there's opportunities to reallocate. And yeah, I agree the same thing with you guys, right? Uh, as an engineer, I'm, I'm a bit more on the technology side, right? So if you involved, especially with policing and stuff, and if you were a little bit more technology, data, the information gathered, mm -hmm. and uh, we, we can save on man hours and, uh, and improve the cost, right? Yes, and I'll tie this into the police thing. Um, I didn't, I didn't uh, mention this earlier, but Arbor, you said you think you're the only candidate with noise in the platform. And I will say, you check out my website, you'll see I'm in favor of installing nor noise radars around this ward. Street racing and, and loud cars deliberately no. trying to wake people up in the middle of the night. Um, those so need no, to be addressed with so noise radars. Noise radars, that goes a little bit of too far policing in my opinion, but what would the noise ra radars do since you open the topic? It, this, yeah, so the same way that there's speed radars around the ward. So if you're speeding, for example, in certain school zones, you'll automatically get a ticket. It would be the same thing, but for noise radars and these, this technology already exists. What about the, the drunk people, the street that people are, are, uh, are, are keeping them up at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. or certain areas? Would the, this would, would be for help? vehicles and street racing and that type of thing. Uh, I actually, since we're in a, uh, the debate period, I had uh, one small question. Um, mm. uh, lifelong resident of Toronto myself, but I actually don't know if the Toronto police um, uh, patrol the islands. So with going with mm. your, your bridge idea, April, would that call for increased uh, um patrols given that anyone can bike or walk across if the if the the bridge comes to fruition I, I would say the island would be patrolled the same way any other public park would be yeah yeah but thank you for talking about the island bridge yeah. and if I may um shall we so I'm proposing to build a pedestrian cycling bridge to the island, which would connect the Portlands towards island. It's only about 200 to 250 meter gap there. And 94% of the people in our ward, myself included, you see me in my 530 square foot condo, you can see most of it right now. We don't have a backyard. So it's about making the best use of the park space that we currently have. 
And that's the island. It shouldn't cost us $8.70 to access our ward's largest public park. It's like the equivalent of us having to pay to access Trinity Bellwoods, for example. So I think it's very forward thinking, especially considering that Rail Deck Park, which was the park proposed to be built over the rail tracks from Bathurst to Blue Jays Way, is not going to be happening the way we initially envisioned, as it turns out the city doesn't own the air rights. And we currently see what's happening at Ontario Place, where the province is selling a lot of it to developers and the city is trying to do as much as it can, but in reality doesn't own the vast, vast majority of Ontario Place. Anyway, this is a great way to make the best use of public parks. So, April, if I may ask, if, if public infrastructure projects are, I have a vast interest because I've had years of experience, how much would you say this cost, this bridge will cost? Yeah. And how much would to, to be built and to maintain, to be maintained and to be operated? Because what I understand is going to be a lifting bridge that goes up and down. Uh, so mm -hmm. it's going to be some hydraulic system that goes there. And it's quite a big lift because as we've seen, you have sailboats going there. You have yeah. big, big ships from Red Path coming in and out, right? Yeah, so, yeah, so you're you, right. So there's about one to... bit of a cost. Yeah, so there's about one to two cargo ships that go through the Eastern Channel every week. So it's not too big of a deal that would, it would raise there. And there are some sailboats that have large masses. So again, the, the bridge would lift. It's very preliminary, Arbor. So we had originally estimated around $15 million based off the other bridges that have gone up very recently around the area. But we will obviously have a lot of design proposals come in and then we would choose the one that is, you know, a combination of most convenient and least expensive and most practical for all Torontonians. So if I'm, because I, I build schedule, I book costs for this kind of infrastructure project. So nice. I, I know, I know them inside out. I can tell you $50 million, it just probably, just a steal on that bridge is going to be worth that much. So for you to build a bridge like that and to maintain it roughly on 10 years, because you can, as yeah. you say, it's not going to be automatic, you're going to have people there moving yeah. it up and down as they go. That's that's going to be 300, 400 million dollars. This so is, this, so this is how I think about it. You, let, let me finish, please. This 400 million dollars, and you, I, I, I'm not saying you're right or wrong on the bridge, right? But this amount of money would it be better, better value for money to be used somewhere else in the city services, not just affordable houses and stuff like that, et cetera, than a pedestrian bridge. So first of all, I think you're you're vastly overestimating the cost of the bridge. But what I will say is we all pay now for not having the bridge. If we're thinking about how much of our my individual property tax or your individual property tax is going to go into the bridge, we're paying for it now. Every time we want to access the island, it costs us eight dollars and seventy cents to not have the bridge. Yeah, but you're already so, paying for the for you, the boat's already there, right? So you're paying yeah, for but the I'm maintenance, paying to get on just it. keeping. Just to keep, well, that's that's the cost of keeping those boats running, right? The boats. No, like I'm, I'm paying to get on the bridge. Sorry, I'm paying. To, sorry, the bridge is free, but you're paying to get to the island. Currently, it's costing you eight dollars and seventy cents. That's if you bother to wait for the ferry, get in the line. You might not actually make it onto that ferry. Otherwise, you're going to take a water taxi, and that costs more. So what I'm saying is, not having the bridge is individually costing Torontonians. But as I said. Of 40 million people going over there for cost to Arbor's high point of what was that 400 million, low point 50 million, so 5 million trips, which would be reasonable. 
but have you ever even considered either doing something like expanding the tunnel under Billy Bishop? I know your big area here is more park space for people on the east, yeah. which is desperately yeah. needed. We do need yeah. that. But the expanding the tunnel, I think the tunnel originally cost the airport $36 million mm-hmm. to go from uh, Billy Bishop Airport to Billy Bishop Airport. But to expand that, I think it's another 350 meter underground tunnel. Now that would cost more in today's money, but I think that'd be even a more economic option. It'd have less maintenance because it'd have no mechanical moving parts and it would be a way for people to access the bridge. Now that would add more traffic into an area that's already incredibly congested, but something yes. worth considering. I, I can't yeah, definitely, Kyle. Yeah. I had a, so I would say thank you for the suggestions or I think you were asking me a question, but anyway, I'll say thank you for the suggestion. We'll definitely be open to different ideas. This one seemed to be the most practical based off the whole, based off the geography and based off if you enter from the airport where that tunnel will currently take you, you end up having to literally go over the runway. So this seems like the most practical solution. Anyway, sorry, I'll look at you guys. Yeah, I had a uh, call with um, I had a call with the ports of Ports Toronto people because I wanted to understand actually the co- the cost around uh, or the possibility of extending the tunnel to um, you know the publicly accessible part as a, of uh, Hanlon's as opposed to obviously walking over the runway, which is not uh, would not make sense. And they were explaining that it would be about four times the cost of the original tunnel because it's four times the length, uh, roughly. Um, I think that's something that maybe can be negotiated when they're trying to do things in the future, whether it's the lease renewals or uh, anything else that they're trying to accomplish. Uh, in regards to the bridge myself, I'm curious about um, reallocating that money, like uh, Arbor said, to affordable housing and or possibly doing more with the existing ferry system uh, if we if we really want to revitalize it that way. Um, I'm, I wouldn't personally put money into the bridge. And I, 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 I'm the same way. In, in my sense, I, I wouldn't put money to the bridge or the tunnel. I would rather use that money, to, uh, as Stephanie saying, to affordable house, maintaining our parks over here, increasing our green space, uh, improving our, our harbor fronts. Uh, I think there's better ways of spending $300 million. Yeah, so that's your okay. estimate. But anyway, agree to disagree on all of bridge-related topics. Perfect. Well, um, I, I have an experience to back up my ex- estimates. You don't. Thank you, guys. I, I do because I have people on my team that did research, but thank you. We're going we're gonna to move along to the last set of questions. Uh, for this set, there will be actually three questions. One popped up in the last week. Um, so I'll ask them all, and we'll start with Stephanie, and then Kyle, and then April, and then Arbor. You'll finish us off. And so the questions are, uh, Ebony's question would be, do you think the counselors receive too many perks? I mean, they, it, it's, it's a great salary, but then you also have, uh, there's a housing allowance, there's uh, the zoo pass, the free parking, the free metro pass, the the fill in the blank because there's probably more I'm missing um my questions would be um in the last week we've seen a Toronto City Councilor criminally charged and in your opinion should he resign and not run or not and my third question I apologize is uh there is a current public outcry um 
due to uh, the encampment removal to have Tracy Cook, who's the interim city manager, fired. How do you respond to this and why? Stephanie, you're up. You gave me a really full question to start with. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so for the uh, sorry, for the city perks, I'll take the easy one first. Uh, for, for the city perks, uh, I would want to understand how much that's actually costing to give the city councilors mm -hmm. that. If, for example, it costs nothing, then why wouldn't we just leave it alone, right? But if there's an actual cost to it, then I'd want to understand who's using it and, and whether it should remain. So I would want a full list of what those were and what it actually cost us before I could give you an answer for that one. For uh, Tracy Cook, in regards to um, potentially getting her to resign for management of the encampments, and I believe there was another uh, issue that she had been... Uh, under the radar for, but anyways, uh, I would want to have an understanding of uh, the conversations. Uh, I I certainly wouldn't be ruling out something. I'd want to have conversations with her. I would want to have an understanding of what led her to do that. I would want to have an understanding of what kind of pressure she received to do that. That being said, I think no matter what level of uh, job you're at, you need to act with integrity. So I think no matter who told her what to do, if that happened, uh, there should have been a moral compass in there. So I don't, I don't agree with how she handled things. That part's obvious. Uh, what kind of actions to be taken that I would want to look at her employee file. I would want to have a conversation with her. I'd want to have other conversations. Um, sorry, what was the third one? Uh, there's a Toronto City Councilor that was criminally charged in the last week, and uh, should he resign? In, in your opinion, it's all opinion. Uh, should he resign and, and not run for re-election? Are you okay to say what he was charged with? Sexual assault. Sexual assault. Thank you. Sorry. Um, two, count, two counts of sexual assault. Wow. Uh, okay. So uh, I did not know about that, but... Um, I think at minimum, he should be not working, not getting paid while not working at minimum. And then uh, a further, I'll ask an embarrassing question. My understanding is, is when they're charged that hasn't gone through the courts yet. So if that's the case, off without pay till the decision comes out and then a different decision, depending on if he gets charged um, like guilty, like found guilty, sorry. I'm fumbling on this one. I wasn't. I wasn't expecting this one. Sorry. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Kyle, go ahead. All right. I'll start with the city council perks. So I understand that the perks are, besides salary, is like parking, uh, random uh, amenities of Toronto, and TTC usage. So my viewpoint on this is that actually uh, we should not receive perks revolving around public infrastructure, but we should be mandated to use those perks because we are servants of the people and we need to know, we need to know firsthand what experiences are like on those uh, facilities. So for example, TTC, we need to know what it's like to pay every single time you're going on a ride. We need to know what it's like to be in the traffic that is in the TTC so we can advocate for the public about how it should be properly done. If it's free, it doesn't seem as bad for us waiting 10, 15 minutes when I didn't have to pay 325 or if the bus is late, two hours late, I don't have to pay 325 again for a perk. If I have to do this, I will be more aware of it. So I do think actually that we should reduce perks around public 
uh, usage, but I think all city councilors should be encouraged at any time to use any public infrastructure where possible or enforced actually. And then we'll go with the Tracy Perks question. So the thing about Tracy Perks is that uh, she had an, well, she's taking the credit, correct, for removing everyone in the encampments. Yeah, Tracy Cook. Yeah, okay, cool. sorry. <laughs> so this is, in my opinion, uh, this is the democracy. And she was appointed by John Tory on the city council. So everybody should be mentioning to those people at the city council their displeasure and not vote for those members again if they want her removed from office. I don't think we can forcibly remove her from office, but everybody has a right to voice their displeasure of removing her from office. Personally, I think it was an awful way to go about removing people from encampments. Uh, it was private security force and cost millions of dollars. It could have been done a way better way, but if you ask me today what the better way would have been, I still don't know the answer. There's going to be times when every city councillor has to make a tough decision that nobody's going to like, and they're going to have to be held accountable to those decisions, but they're not always going to be pleasing to the public either. So I think it has to be up to democracy to figure out whether she deserves to be working or not. And then for, I don't want to get his last name wrong, Mike what? Uh, Mike Thompson. Mike Thompson. Okay. Now this one as well, it's uh, just before the election and it's two counts of sexual assault. I do think that anybody who has any information should come forward on this because it's a very precarious situation. Public accounts, uh, people who have personally seen it or know the person because uh, it's very uh, big allegation and to come at a time that's election season innocent until proven guilty as we know it has to go through the court system so through the court system there should be nothing that's barring him from uh, running for an election because at this point it's an allegation but at the same time anybody who has more information on this but it's again a sensitive issue so in my opinion he should still be able to run uh, the court of the public opinion, though, is the strongest court, and hopefully people vote in favor of who they believe should be. I think that if people that think he should step down should strongly urge him to step down, that have any more information on that, if they believe him to be guilty of the actions. Thank you. April, go ahead. Great. I'll start with the hardest topic first, that being the counselor that you mentioned that we have found out recently has been charged with sexual assault. But I'll say just in case anyone's watching this in the future, right now it's October 3rd. We know very little. The charges themselves have not been made public yet. So we're operating with very little information. And I want to say that I will always stand with victims of sexual assault and the fact that there are any allegations whatsoever make me extremely nauseous. At this point, I will just say I support what Mayor Tory did, which is this person is no longer deputy mayor while these, while these allegations go through the court system. I think that was the right choice to make. Moving on to the Tracy Cook situation, I will say we've put a lot of blame on this person for the encampment evictions. And let's be clear, the encampment evictions were atrocious, obviously, and, and I've talked about this on your podcast previously. Any which way you want to look at it from a humanitarian perspective, Obviously, we treated homeless people very terribly during the evictions. Um, even just through a city budget perspective, it was 
awful. We paid the equivalent of $30,000 poor homeless person evicted for them to only end up going to a different park. So it was extremely ineffective. We should never do something like that again. It's hard for me to say whether I believe that this entire thing falls on one person. I know that's how a lot of people played the blame game, but in reality, a lot of people, including people on city council who were elected at the time, put this thing together. So I'm not gonna put all the blame on one person. I would instead advocate to have another inquiry on what happened and make sure that we have a better plan going forward. Um, in terms of city parks, no. I do not think that city councillors should have a free parking pass or um, a free TTC pass. And it's, Kyle, exactly the reasons why that you said. If you watch some, some um, board meetings, for example, there were people on the TTC board, sitting city councillor, who did not know the price of the TTC because because people aren't actually either riding it or paying for it. So for all the same reasons that being a city councillor, you should be in touch with the average person in, in the city of Toronto. And the average person does not have free parking right downtown and does not have a free TTC pass. So for those reasons, this job should be like any other. Thank you so much. Arbor, go ahead. Yeah, so if I may add when it comes to, I, I wouldn't, called uh, as i said i, I run i run multi-million dollar budgets in the past so what we usually do call this i wouldn't call them perks but there's some states that are called cost of doing business for example i wouldn't agree with somebody to have a free tdc pass but if that person needs to use it if the council for example needs to use that tdc to go somewhere for for a city for a, for a city job or a city meeting, then yeah, they should get that free ride because cost of doing business. For example, if the council in Port Union needs to to oversee any any other zoos, any maintenance or anything that's going on, then yeah, you might need a pass to go there and visually inspect. But us as work tenants that have nothing to do with the zoo and we're never there, why should we get a free a free zoo pass? Because it doesn't make sense. It's not part of our business needs. So all this expenses or, or all this perks, you might call it, should be business need basis. So based on what is needed for the city and what is needed for you to do the work. So they shouldn't be just random perks. You shouldn't have a wonderland pass for no reason. I'm sorry, like that does not make a sense. And, and in a way, that, that's what we have to think about it when as a city around. In a way, it's a business, right? It's, it's a business for the people to, to support the people. So, uh, yeah, that, that's my answer when it comes to perks. But uh, on the other side, for the for the two individuals, one that was charged and the other person about encampment, I, I think me myself is a professional and all these guys as well. As a city elected official, we got to be held to a very high degree of standard, right? Like me as an engineer, if I build a bridge and it fails, I'm responsible for it. So when you are that role and you are making those decisions, being right or wrong, you those are your decisions and you have to stand by. So if you made a wrong decision about encampment, you made it and you have to stand for it. And then if people don't agree with it, these are the people that elected you and you gotta go. If you're being charged with two degrees of, uh, of rape, you might say, or of sexual assault, I'm not sure what he's being charged of, but, uh, you should you should not be running for city for for 
or political office because you have to be you have to have very high ethics standards right they, they you got to follow so if you if if something like that that's ongoing that but i'm sorry then you should not be be part of it because at this point your ethics your standards have been in questions and you should do the right thing and stand back yourself until everything gets cleared out especially if you know that that is true and you believe that you have done nothing wrong thank you so much and now the floor is open to discuss um this debate this or or anything else that you think uh needs fixing at city hall in terms of uh i, I used culture but i i got uh lamb blasted for using the word culture so we're not going to use that word uh you know cleaning up city hall we'll say go ahead anyone can start oh I'll go ahead with, oh, sorry uh, kyle yeah i'll just mention about the cost of doing business thing uh, the cost of doing business makes sense when you make money for a company or make money for a corporation the cost of doing business for us is making sure that we represent the people of our ward just yeah but that. you also have a budget that's that's your budget right like yeah, but, you, you are running that's your income your yearly incomes come from your taxpayer so as a business you got whatever 10 billion dollars coming every year for taxpayers money so yeah you're, you're that's what you're making so you should be seeing yourself as a business, right? Like ensuring that all cents are, are spent on the right thing and, and if they add value for the residents of Toronto. That's a public so servant. That's the way I see it, right? If you look at it all as a business perspective, you're gonna make a lot of unpeople or a lot of people unhappy when you look at them as numbers and figures instead of actual human beings. Oh, I'm not, we're not looking at the people. I'm looking about maintaining a park. If you have a hundred thousand dollars maintaining a, a park, a budget for the park, you got to make sure that you get value for money of that hundred thousand dollars. Right. And that, that's what I say when you're running as a business, you're not here to hurt somebody's feeling because from a hundred thousand, now they need $150,000 to repair that park. What are you doing? You're wasting taxpayers money because somebody didn't do their job. Somebody didn't ensure that the, the budget was on the line. They didn't provide proper oversight. On a normal on a, on a normal business, you'll be fired if that happens, mm -hmm. right? Here, nothing happens, <clears throat> and I think that that is the problem. That's that's what I'm saying. It should be run more more of a business. People, I mean, not people, but counselors or people that work in in, in the city, they should do a, they they should be they, they have to do a, do do more due diligence on their actions, right? They got to ensure that things get done at the proper budget at the proper time as, as april was mentioning you got you got three subway stations coming in through through the heart of downtown right now so what happens is there's an, an, another angleton and from five billion dollars they go again to ten billion dollars who pays for that right that's why you're there you're there to ensure that this project these things get done on time you are the eyes of the people Yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll bring up another topic, which I, I think it's important to say that I've never been a lobbyist, and that I have no affiliation with any political party. I think at city council, it's, it's important to put constituents first. And that's something that I attend to do as city councillor. put the needs of the constituents top of mind, nothing else getting in the way. I'm not sure that's different than what each of us are saying in our own way, though, right? Because I mean, and then say it, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, no, I I think we were all saying it from our lens of how we thought it was going to help, 
residents. So I don't, I don't know that's different. Yeah, I don't uh, and for the for the work perks, I, I was pretty clear that if it cost us nothing, what does it what does it matter? Uh, so I wasn't saying that we should be actually spending money so that they can get these free things. Um, I also was saying that I think it's important to call it, I would like to know the whole list of things to, to go through them. But uh, things like using the TTC as an example, if we're paying per counselor for them to have this unlimited pass and they're not even using it, it's definitely a waste. If we're trying to, um, like, I don't, I don't think it's a big, I don't think it's a big issue topic, to be honest. I'd, I'd rather be talking about, unless it's surprisingly a huge line item on the budget, but, you know. Yeah, I think, Stephanie, for me, it's not, sorry, I'll, it's not about no, it being a huge line item on the budget, and I agree, like, let's move on to talk about more important things. It's not about how much does it actually cost the city. I think it's more just about making sure that city councillors are walking in the shoes of everyday Torontonians and having to pay for city services. Yeah, and I mean, I definitely think that it's important to have the regular experience overall. Uh, but interestingly enough, I have not said this, but I've had counselor uh, candidates say this to me that they think that the pay of the city councillor is not enough, which to me is ridiculous because it's more than last I looked, something like seventy-five percent of the people in this riding. But um, if you know, if we're still also wanting to attract talent like any corporation there is usually some kind of work perks i worked at a bank there were certain things that we got as just a perk uh, that went with the job so that's why i keep going back to if it costs us nothing i don't really care about it if there's a cost to it then i would probably have an issue with it so so if i may add something i guess april because you were talking about the, the needs of the resident if i'm asked because you said your, your bridge is going to cost you 30 million dollars so how, how would you ensure that cost 30 million? Because what happens for Anglican Light? Halfway in, they came back and said, hey, you know what? We need another $5 billion to build it. So what happens okay, if so, you break? Yeah, I laugh a bit just because every time you, you use a different monetary dollars. amount. Sorry, what was the actual question? I'm just saying, how, how, just strictly, how would you ensure that the bridge, as you said, is, you said is $30 million. How would you ensure that the, the, whoever builds that bridge only spends $30 million? And don't come back oh, with I said, and say, I said I less than another that, 60 but... million or 20, whatever you said, five, let's say five for argument's sake. Okay. Um, I would, I would make sure that the, the bridge stays on budget by making sure that it stays on time and we move forward the same way that we work on all projects. I would make sure that it's actually run by the city and not Metrolink so that we don't end up with an, with a Eglinton situation. You know, since city does city doesn't have much experience in building bridges. Metrolink has a lot of experience in building subways and that happened to them so that's why I, i'm kind of worried like we're going in to avenues that we don't have experience in and thinking we're doing better than people that actually have experience in building it and they're, they're actually failing right now and there's double the double the cost yeah i think we've done a lot more difficult things in the city like look at the bloor subway for example like it, it there's there's a lot more difficult things in the city that we've done than build a 200 meter bridge so i'm i'm really not concerned about it i think it's entirely feasible let me just jump in for a second because i think uh one thing that uh that have we haven't touched and it's one thing that is on every constituent's mind is accessibility answering the phone mm. and returning emails right. and i think that we can all agree that it does not happen with this current council. Otherwise, we all would not be here in this debate right now. I'd love to hear yes. uh, uh, anything, 
in the open format, anything you, you all want to say on uh, the, the issue of accessibility? Go ahead, anyone can I'll, start. I'll go first. Um, to any listener, send me an email and see how quickly I respond. You'll see I'm, I'm extremely responsive, I'm extremely approachable, I'm open to criticism, I'm open to feedback, and I think that's actually one of my greatest strengths as a candidate and would be as a city councillor is being responsive and being present. Yeah, even in the uh, campaign myself, I actually put up the option for people to book Zoom meetings, either groups or one-on-ones, in addition to email, in addition to calling me. So I did try to, in addition to doing uh, the large majority of uh, all my door knocking, uh, so I've really tried to make sure that people get to meet me uh, in any way that they feel comfortable, because of course some people still want to keep a certain distance and things like that. So. Um, I think that uh, my my website as well as my actions show that I've already been trying to be very accessible and would hope to maintain would be maintaining that not hope would be maintaining that. I like that. I like the Zoom meeting. I will say that uh, feels like work a bit. I, I believe the the first time I emailed uh, April, she answered immediately, and. And Stephanie, when you first registered, you, your I don't believe your email was on there, but your phone number was, and she picked up first ring, first ring, boom. Um, Hi, five, Stephanie. Unfortunately, um, Kyle and, and Arbor, I, I didn't get a chance to do a one-on-one -on -one interview with you, and I apologize for that. Um, with There's so always many, with so with so many candidates, and I've been talking to people everywhere from Niagara Falls to Oshawa to Ottawa to Wasega Beach, Hamilton, Brampton, Mississauga, and Vaughan and Innisfil and a lot of places in between. And uh, so I, I've been uh, quite busy, so I do apologize. And uh, with that, I, I'd like to move to our, our closing statement. Um, hmm. So Arbor, why don't you go first and then Stephanie and then Kyle, and then it, we'll finish off with April. Go ahead, Arbor. Well, uh, I just wanted to say, so I'm, 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 I'm not here to make a political career myself, right? I, I truly believe I'm capable of making our war better and improving it based on the experience that I have. And, and that's what I care about. I, I lived in this area for a while now, and I call it my home. And I, I see a lot of improvements that can happen, and which I know I'm capable of, of, of performing to the highest standard, because that's where I accept my bar myself. So I'm here to, to do my daily job at, and as, as a counselor, I look at it more of a, in a way, a, a project, a, a project role, not a political role, because all you got to do is you got your stakeholders, which are your, your, your residents, and you got to ensure that the stuff are getting done, but for them, right, everything is been, like all, all the, the public and city, city services are, are getting time and time are getting done correctly, being, being the public transit, being the, the the, the garbage pickup and everything it's it's to the highest standards and that's where i think we should keep keep those uh, those services and that's where i would aim what would i aim to do if i get if i get voted in and be there to support the people and their needs and don't forget to tell people your website so they can uh look you up and any uh, send you any comments questions or suggestions yeah, yeah, for sure. My uh, my website, my Instagram, my Twitter, Twitter handle, uh, uh, Facebook, they're all my name, arborpucci.com, A-R-B-E-R-P-U-C-I.com. So any questions or concerns, feel, anybody feel free to contact me and I'll try to get back to you as soon as possible. That's my promise. Thank you so much. And just so uh, 
all of you know, uh, your website information will all be in the show notes for YouTube. And eventually this will get on Spotify before the election. Uh, but we're trying to build our YouTube channel uh, uh, right now. So it'll be on YouTube tonight. Stephanie, go nice. ahead. So yes, I plan on being available as one of your voting options for as long as I believe that I can be helpful to the community. I This is obviously my first time running. I um, really wanna use my focus of affordability, accessibility, and recovery on every decision that I make. Uh, I'm in this because I really do wanna help. Um, as I think probably most, most of us are. And I think that my experiences uh, in the corporate world actually will transfer over quite nicely. Uh, there's a lot of project management skills that you need in the jobs that I did, relationship management, negotiation, uh, managing uh, the service levels of a relationship with your contracts, uh, contract negotiation. Uh, anyways, <laughs> a lot of things that I think will carry over quite nicely. And uh, and I really want to uh, have a chance to help. My phone, best way to reach me is the phone, actually. So it's 437-26-STEF. So kind of cheesy like the pizza numbers used to be. Nice. Um, but in case you're not nice. familiar, it's 437-267-8374. And my website is a bit of a mouthful because I was born with a long name. So it's www.stephaniesalterman.ca. So definitely recommend the phone number option as your first way to try to reach me. And uh, hopefully I'll I'll meet uh, meet some more people on the doors. Thank you so much for coming out, Stephanie. And also, sorry, thank you, Arbor. I didn't I didn't uh, personally thank you, and I wanted to sorry. do that. And uh, now, Kyle, go ahead. Well, for anybody that just wants to see a closing statement, my name's Kyle Enslin, and I moved to the city about seven years ago with dreams of owning a house and having a very viable uh, dream in Toronto. Over the coming years, that seems uh, more distant, distant, uh, achievable goal. Uh, many cases, you'll find people around my age, I'd say that between the 25 to 34 age group, they move to Toronto for four years and then leave because it's cost too much to live here. We need somebody who's young, somebody who can represent the younger generation in council. We haven't had anybody, I think that has done that in many years. Uh, we need somebody that will grow and understand the issues as we grow. I want to live in this community. I want to start a family in this community. And I know that everyone else does too. So help me fight for that dream. I encourage everyone to come to www.votefourenslin.ca. That's V-O-T-E, the number four, E-N-S-L-E-N.ca. And check out my platform. I think if you liked anything I had to say here today, that you'll enjoy what you see there as well. Thank you so much. And thank you for coming out, Kyle. My pleasure. And April, with that, go ahead. Yeah, so I'd like to thank my fellow candidates for coming out tonight. It's, I think this has been a good, healthy debate. I'm, I'm comfortable debating because I'm a lawyer and, and I, I think we've really all gotten our point across and it's been nice chatting with you. Um, also, Matt, thank you for hosting. And if you made it this far listening, come out and vote. We have a very low voter turnout in our ward. It was about 35% last time. Let's try to make that better. I hope you've liked what you've heard tonight, um, that being, you know, building the bridge to the island, legalizing drinking in public parks in our ward, planning around the Ontario line to make sure that the construction projects do not take over lanes of traffic and sidewalks for years, 
making more green initiatives to ensure that all decisions at Toronto City Council are made with the climate top of mind and building more affordable housing around this ward. I live, work and spend most of my time in this ward. I'm running because I'm just so passionate about Toronto City Council. I couldn't stop myself from running if I tried. My website is voteforapril.com. Again, that is voteforapril.com. You can also find me on Instagram, Twitter, and even now TikTok. So check it out and I hope to earn your vote. Thank you so much for coming out, April. And again, thank you to all of you. Uh, to my listeners, I will say that voting day is October the 24th. It's crucial that we get out and vote. Um, and early voting opens on the 7th to the 14th. And I always like to say that the only way to affect change is to be part of it. Um, Again, thank you guys for coming out. I'm excited for the city of Toronto. I'm excited for the next council term and I'm really excited for Ward 10. Thanks, Matt. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you, thank Matt, you. for arranging this. And all the best to everyone. Thank you. Yeah. Cheers and good luck, everybody. Take care.